The cost of youth soccer, the industry, has just gotten completely out of control. Why are kids on certain teams and how they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? There really seems to be a lack of inclusion. I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> right, so, right. But you no. know all that BS? Forget that. We're not saying it because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. play to win. Yes, it's the Irregularly Scheduled Ranting Soccer Dad podcast. Today is September 20th, 2018. I am your host, Bo Dewar. For the last four weeks or so since late summer, I have been assistant refing for travel games and coaching rec soccer games. And they've both been learning experiences, even though I've been coaching rec soccer for 10 years now. I've been trying out the new play, practice, play. You may have noticed that U.S. US soccer has once again changed its coaching education curriculum, and in doing so, they have given us a new way of organizing practice. It is called play, practice, play. And this replaces the old warm-up, small-sided activity, expanded small-sided activity, which no one could ever actually define what that was, and then scrimmage. The idea here, and I think it's a good one, is that when kids come into practice, you immediately start them playing. Now, after a couple of minutes of warming up, you can stop them and say, okay, stretch, preferably dynamic stretches. So it, in this case, you just say, all right, welcome to practice and start playing and as more kids come in you set up more games and then you can start talking about the lesson that you're trying to impart for that particular practice so if you're talking about creating space you can go into over these small-sided games and say all right what are some ways that you can create more space. What are some ways that you can draw a defender over and make it easier for this person to dribble through or to create a passing lane? You know, that, that sort of thing. And then you get, they give them a water break. Then you get to the practice phase, which is where you do your activity. And the funny thing about this is that every plan I've seen so far is a modified half field scrimmage of some kind. So I've been trying to do that with my teams. And the experiment, it's a good idea. It's just not working for the environment that I have, which is, first of all, uh, I'm not the first team on this particular field, and there's no transition time between practices. So I practice at 7 o'clock, which means the person before me is practicing until 7 o'clock. And I usually have a bunch of players ready to go right at 7 o'clock. They've been arriving early, bless their hearts. And so then we say, all right, well, they're leaving. And invariably, the coaches are leaving and leaving all their cones behind. And then, you know, five minutes later, oh, um, I need to get all my cones. Yeah, great. Thanks, coach. So then we set up a, a couple of small-sided games and, you know, it's funny, when you watch the videos, and this isn't new, this is something that you've seen in videos past, and also any coaching demonstrations that you've seen. You know, it's a group of eager kids 
who hang on every word and do exactly as you say. That's not real life. <laughs> and so in my case, it's a bunch of kids. Coach, coach, where, you know, do I need to wear a red penny? Oh, I don't like wearing red pennies. You know, I don't like, it. you know, what is it? Do other people have kids who don't want to wear pennies? I don't get it. it it's just, it, it's like an affront to them. And you see them, instead of just wearing the pennies, they'll like flip it up, you know, like, like they're celebrating a goal or something like that. You know, the old front of the shirt goes over the back of the head sort of thing. And that's what they do with my pennies, uh, which, by the way, I paid for because they're not given to us for free. So that's what they're doing with the pennies. And some of them are just holding them in their hands and refusing to wear them. And it's, you know, I could make them do it. But the the other issue is I decided, and this may not be working now, to get a larger practice space by having two teams there at the same time. And so I have U14s and U16s. The U16s generally get it. The U14s, they're sweet kids, but they're middle schoolers. So they, some of them aren't quite doing what they should be doing. So I try to get them to set up their small-sided games. It's really not, it shouldn't be all that hard. And then go from there. And I, I wind up not coaching at all through this phase because I have one group coming in and setting up. Now, if I had more assistant coaches, it might help. Uh, if I had more people who would just, you know, set up cones at least. Uh, but I, I just don't have that. You know, I really need to have someone who can serve as a traffic cop and say, okay, well, you know, six more people just came in. Okay, here's eight cones. Go set up a small-sided game and play. And first of all, the kids don't get it. And secondly, I just don't have other adults who can do that. So it, it's not an indictment of the system. It's just that they're you always face some reality. You always face some reason why things don't work as ideally as they do in the in there, and that's that's what's happening. And I'm also going to have to split the teams because I've been. I, I I thought it was a brilliant idea. I really thought this would work to have, you know, since I have half of a full size field, half of a full size FIFA, you know, regulation field. Well, it's narrow like every turf field in at a school is you know it's uh you know the the penalty hash mark is inside the penalty bots which is or penalty excuse me penalty area we're not supposed to say penalty bots i learned in my ref ref classes uh you're also supposed to say touchline and pretty soon you'll have to say football and lift and biscuits when you really mean cookies I don't know why they insist on that, but anyway, it's the penalty area, and the 10-yard mark from the corner is invariably inside that penalty area, so you know how narrow this is. So I really thought that we could use half the field and do, you know, an 8v7, a 9v8, you know, 10v9, and so forth, and it just doesn't work because I can't get, you know, you know, the other kids disengage. The kids who are not in at the moment all disengage. And even the kids who are in, you know, you try to assign them positions and they don't listen or they don't get it. I mean, if you 
quickly go through and say, okay, these 10 people, okay, left back, center back, center back, right back, you know, and you're trying to assign all these people positions and always two or three of them are not going to remember. Two or three of them are going to think that you said left mid when you really meant left forward or they're going to think that, you know, left means right because they're facing left or it, it just doesn't work. So I'm going to have to split the teams up and we're going to have to use the smaller goals. And that's the bane of my existence right now. So uh, refing is interesting. It took me four weeks to get my badge, not because of anything I was doing wrong. I made a hundred on my test, which actually shocked me because there are, uh, they, they ask a lot of trick questions. Uh, there are things along the lines of if a defender who is not involved in the game is standing outside the corner flag and bends the corner flag uh, just as someone, you know, kicks a corner kick into his own net, what is the appropriate restart? I mean, it's stuff like that. And so th the fact that I got 100 on that doesn't mean I'm a brilliant ref. It just means that I... I don't know. I was my reading comprehension was at full blast that day, <laughs> and also I, I guessed correctly on a couple of the more arcane ones. Uh, but what I've noticed so far in refing, first of all, I'm treated with a great deal of respect. It's really rather heartwarming. You hear all these stories about ref abuse, and you you hear how many kids don't want to do it anymore, and then you see. Coaches like me who lose their temper at the end of close games and just, um, I pitched a little fit at the end of uh, one of the games last week. We we tied two to two and we had one sequence in which uh, one of their players managed to get away with kind of a bear hug. It was kind of, the referee was shielded and couldn't really see it. And then another player from the, a player from their team went down rather easily as the saying goes and got a call and so at that point I flung my clipboard down and I felt I immediately felt bad about that so I still haven't really encountered any anyone who anyone who does anything worse than that there's the occasional expression I heard a couple of kids you know get mad I, I actually flagged a keeper who was punting and sailed outside his box. And people on the team tried to tell me, oh, he was still inside the box when he released it from his hands. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, then he's an Olympic long jumper. Because by the time he punted the ball, he was way out. It wasn't even close. But by and large, it's really good. And parents, always, parents say thank you after the game. All the kids and coaches have been nice. It's really good. I did stop by a U9 game recently. I'm not, not yet working. So far, I've only worked as an assistant ref. Uh, I will be the center ref in a couple of weeks for U9 and U10 games. So I stopped by a couple of games where someone I knew was refing, actually a kid that I've coached uh, who's now in high school or late middle school. So I wanted to see how he refed with the build-out lines which are new, in case you don't know about this, uh, they've put lines down halfway between the, oh, this is a, a small-sided field, so it's basically half the size, 
you know, it, it's going crossways across a full-size field. And they put these build-out lines, which are halfway between the penalty area and midfield. And when the opponent has a goal kick, you have to retreat past that line. The idea is that this will encourage defenders to play it out of the back. It also means that you don't get a lot of cheap goals just by pressing the goal kick, which, you know, I saw a game that was 22 to nothing once in U9. It was because they just clumped around and uh, the keeper was having a tough time getting the ball out of his bots and they just stood there and took it and scored. And the parents of that team were actually getting mad because that team wasn't playing anything resembling soccer. They were just stealing the goal kick and shooting. And if they they either scored or they got another goal kick. So I think it's a great idea. And apparently it's been done places in Europe. So I just wanted to see how it was enforced and how it how it worked. And so I wound up on the sideline between the two coaches. And I sat there for two games. In one of the games, one of the coaches was beyond joystick coaching. He's running up and down the length of the field and telling people what to do like an over-exuberant U8 coach which he was the year before. And then the, for the Nets game, one that uh, one the, the kid I coached uh, was, was refing, he made both coaches go to the same sideline, which they are supposed to do. They're supposed to know that they're supposed to be on the same sideline. The parents are on the opposite. We're starting to play real soccer now. You know, this isn't U8 where you have a bunch of, you know, 4v4 games and, oh, let's get all the parents out so they can, you know, toss the ball back in when it goes out so we can play. No, this is supposed to be a real soccer game with a ref and with goals that are not portable, <laughs> that sort of thing. Well, they may be portable, but not goals that you can stuff in the back of a car. So these guys didn't get it, and... They did finally, in this game, end up on the same side. Uh, we got to halftime, which was excruciating in part, in part because you, know, you have a lot of drop balls at that age because somebody gets hurt, and because they're U9, you want to you check in on them. You know, Your threshold for stopping the game for an injury is much lower at U9 than it would be in the pros. Um, of course, in the NWSL, I think someone has to be flatlining for them to give a red card or to stop the game or anything. Uh, but at U9, you're going to stop the game pretty readily for such things. So he did that a couple of times, and he would do the drop ball. And, of course, if you've seen any soccer games, you know what a drop ball is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the team that was not in possession of the ball, kicks it back to the team that was. That's what you're supposed to do. None of these coaches know that. None of the coaches I've coached against know that. Coaches all the way up to like U14 and U16, they don't get it. And I know some of them watch soccer, but I guess a lot of them don't. And these people have clearly never seen a soccer game in their lives. And so the ref would have a drop ball and... Uh, one coach will say, okay, wait till the yellow team comes down. And I'm thinking, no, you don't wait till the yellow team comes down. You don't have to have two teams for a drop ball. You know, you can have one player. You, it, no, it's, it, it's pretty silly. And it served them right when on the last play of the game, uh, the ref dropped the ball and the woman kept yelling, oh, yellow team has to be down there. Yellow team has to be down there, which was the opponent, opposing team. 
And so this guy meanders down. Uh, the ref drops the ball. Uh, the opponent steals it and immediately scores. So that's what you get <laughs> for insisting that drop ball regulations are like that. Uh, so we got through half of this game. And then they were coming after the second half, and I heard a coach yell, okay, are they supposed to switch sides for the second half? And I don't know what they were doing at U8, because you switch sides even at U8 at halftime. Uh, but the ref said, yes. Yeah, they switch sides. And so the players all very confused, you know, <laughs> switch sides. And each coach picked up his or her bag and walked to the other coach's spot. <laughs> the coaches switch sides, which I'd never seen before. So those are the funny things going on uh, in youth soccer. The less funny thing is about coaching education and U.S. soccer arrogance. And there's an interview, which I will put in the show notes, uh, Mike Waitawa, who's been doing a ton of great interviews recently, uh, talking with Ian Barker of United Soccer Coaches. Quick aside here, United Soccer Coaches is seven syllables. Can we come up with a smaller designation for it, something that rolls off the tongue a bit more? It used to be NSCAA. You can just, okay, that's five syllables, but bam, they just flow right out. NSCAA, as opposed to United Soccer Coaches. If you're writing it out, it's, let's see, 17 letters plus spaces. It, no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, that would be if it were United Soccer. No, it's, ah, never mind. 20-some space characters, whereas NSCAA was five. So you need an abbreviation, guys. Come up with something. I know you don't want to be USC because there are two colleges that already have, you know, fight for the name USC. So, but come up with something, you know. Unsako or something like that. Come up with something. But this interview with Ian Barker, and he talks about the U.S. soccer now does not accept you know, United Soccer Coaches courses uh, as, I don't want to say valid, but if you're applying, certainly if you're applying for a development academy position or something like that, they're not going to care if you have United Soccer Coaches uh you know, education courses on your resume. Uh, I have no idea how an individual club would do that. If you were applying to be, say, a U13 travel coach at a local club and you only had your D license uh, through U.S. soccer, but you'd done all the stuff from the United Soccer Coaches, I don't know how they would weigh it. Uh, but the curriculum thing is kind of, th that's strange enough. Uh, or arrogant enough to insist that, you know, hey, this is the only way we do things. But the astounding part to me, I put this out on Twitter today, was that Barker said he hasn't even had conversations with U.S. soccer. This is a huge organization, United Soccer Coaches. This is where, you know, the United Soccer Coaches Convention, which we used to just call NSCAA, is one of the grand meeting points for soccer in the United States. MLS holds its draft there. And if they ever do away with the draft, they're going to have to come up with some other activity there because it it's just this great meeting place. And it's a great...
great thing for the league to be there uh, with this giant coaching convention. The NWSL has its draft there, and it's quite an occasion now. So much business is done at NSCAA. It's a big trade show because you have all these exhibitors with the latest, uh, the latest in artificial turf, the latest in apps, uh, the latest in cameras, the latest soccer balls, uh, the latest train. It, it, it's, it's huge. And U.S. soccer isn't talking to these people. That is simply wrong. So if you're looking for things about U.S. soccer to harp on right now, that's a pretty big one, which is that you're having these things handed down from on high in Chicago, and they're clearly not getting input. They're clearly not talking with people about it. They're just saying, well, our curriculum is the way to go. Well, why? So that wraps up the coaching education part of today, and I hope your games are going better than mine. So the other item on the agenda today is lower league football. I hope you've seen compass football, which is something that Jason Davis and Nipran Chopra are doing, where they are devoting spe specific time just to lower leagues. It, it's interesting because, of course, there's so much going on there politically. I would argue that from a playing point of view, it was more interesting when I followed it in the late 90s. Rewind to a time when there were only 10 teams in MLS, then 12. That left a ton of talent out there in the great masses uh, of what was then pretty much, just pretty much just the USISL, uh, which morphed into the USL. But it was a, a ton of teams. There was a 24, 28 team a league, which was their top tier, and a fairly substantial Division Three league below that. Uh, they, you know, they messed around with the names for a while. The Pro League um, eventually became the D three league, and then, of course, the PDL below that, uh, which still exists pretty much in its current form. You had a lot of players who made a decent living playing year round. They would play. Uh, indoor for the MISL or whatever the league was calling itself that year. And then they would go back and play outdoor for the A-League. And it was a lot of fun. Now, it's basically lawsuits. Sure, there are people who are being developed uh, this way. There are people who have played for reserve teams in the USL and then worked their way up to uh, MLS and all the people who complain about the reserve teams being in USL need to get over it because it's done in so many countries in the world, including Spain, including Germany. And here it has proven to be valuable experience. And so you have people like Tyler Adams going through playing for the USL team and then going to MLS and then going to the national team. So, yeah, there is there is important soccer going on. But again, the lawsuits are just insane. And you know that Jason and Nippon are doing a good job because they made the NASL angry. So Rishi Segal uh, got in touch with them to, and said that 
oh, more of what you said in your uh, podcast was wrong than right. I would bet a fairly substantial amount of money that that's not true. And the one thing that uh, he really brought up, that Rishi really brought up with Nathan, Jason Nippon here, was saying that, well, the NASL really wasn't developing the pro lead standards. They really didn't have a hand in writing it. Which may, from a technical point of view, be true. And Nippon was drawing from Kartik Krishnayer's book, Soccer Wars, uh, for for doing that and and Kartik was working for the NASL when all this happened and Kartik has since backtracked a little bit and said okay yeah it may not be have been a direct role so but if you think that the NASL had no influence on the pro league standards of that time that's dead wrong it simply is. Now, if you look at the timeline that I posted on October 27th of, two, of last year, 2017, all taken from reliable public sources and court documents. For most of it, I was simply going through the documents that were in the lawsuits that were going back and forth. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to say that the NASL was just sitting back while U.S. soccer was passing all these pro-lead standards. That is not a correct view of history by any stretch of the imagination, no matter how much Rishi wants to spin it. And if that's the only thing Rishi has actually pointed to, that w- you know, the only concrete example that he's given that Jason and Nippon got wrong, then that's nothing. And I hate to be harping on the NASL, but here's the thing about it. It was a bad idea to name the league NASL. It was a bad idea for them to get rid of David Downs, the commissioner who had a lot of credibility. It was a bad idea to walk away from discussions with MLS about how to proceed. It was a bad idea for them to ratchet up the talk about how they were going to bury everybody when they clearly did not have the financial wherewithal to do that. And look, they could have. You know, there's there's so many people who, who point this out, which is that there was nothing preventing the Cosmos and Miami FC and all the people who talked a big game to actually go out and it, they they would certainly trumpet their big big signings. They said, "Hey, look, we did we signed this guy." And there are people telling me, "Oh, the Cosmos are going to spend all this money and they're going to come up with a team that's better than MLS teams and and so forth." And they didn't do it. And nothing changed. It's not like U.S. soccer in 2017 or what, or 2000, yeah, maybe 2017, I suppose. But in 2016, they didn't make it difficult. In fact, actually, you could argue, well, no, in 2017, I guess, was technically when the sanctioning was not renewed. So you could say, okay, that made it more difficult. But the sanctioning was not renewed because they were not a Division II league. They were not meeting the standards that they themselves had signed off on. And you can say, oh, but in 2015, U.S. soccer tried to put this in. Yeah, they tried, and then they backed off from it when the NASL objected. The year before, 2014, new pro league standards went to effect. The NASL didn't make a peep. So, sorry, guys. 
If you want to come in and complain now that the pro league standards are the reason why your league is out of business and that you never had a say in them, you're wrong. There's simply no other way to say it. Now let's go back a bit to the basic history here, which is that the previous USL management, I mean a long time ago, uh, well, no, 2009, which seems a long time ago, but uh, you know, the USL was sold, and they drove away a few team owners. And, you know, there may have been some legitimate reasons for that. It's, it's a little hard to say. You'd have to talk with a lot of people who are around at that time, a lot of people who are in that. And uh, you can't because, well, some of them went on to not particularly savory outcomes um, in soccer. Some of them wound up not having the backing that they implied that they had. So that probably explains the next point, which is that when those owners split away uh, from USL, they didn't do any better. Um, well, to, to be fair, for a short time, under Downs' leadership and then the early Bill Peterson years, they, they were building a fairly viable second division, and that was that was good. But, the, you know, with the collapse of traffic sports, then it just became a pretty bad environment, and they weren't able to build what they said they would. Meanwhile, USL just simply retrenched, and they rebuilt themselves into something that, you know, you may not like their partnership with MLS, but they're playing decent soccer. And perhaps they could be paying a bit more, but then at some point, market forces come in. And again, you have to bear in mind how many more opportunities there are for U.S. players now. You know, in 1997, there were 10 MLS teams. Then there were a bunch of players making a decent amount of money playing, you know, year-round. Well, in 2017, 2018, there are 23, you know, 23, 24, 25, count them all. Count all the MLS teams. There are that many teams, and MLS teams pay well. Make no mistake about it. You know, um, in the early 2000s, you couldn't have said that. Now you can. There's no one in MLS who isn't making a living wage. Pretty much everyone in MLS is making more money than soccer journalists are, I'll tell you that much. So if you can't catch on with any of those teams, maybe you're not entitled to any sort of living. Maybe you're not entitled to a great salary. And the point I keep making again is, that why are we supposed to be all upset that someone playing for the 25th most capitalized team in the United States can earn a decent living uh, when some of the best women's soccer players in the country are making far less. Far less. The minimum salary in the NWSL is in the low 10,000s. Most people are making tr probably 20 or less if you do the math on the salary cap. So they have to supplement their income somehow. And yet it's supposed to be some sort of crime when someone who's playing in the second division has to take a coaching job or has a job in the offseason. 
it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, obviously, I'd love for that not to be the case. I'd love for them to be for there to be a hundred or two hundred professional clubs in the United States in which the senior team players are all making decent money. We're a long way from that happening, and there's nothing U.S. Soccer can change to make that happen. So, if you want to combine these first two segments, you can see where the real problems in U.S. Soccer are. The real problem at U.S. Soccer isn't at the pro level. The problem at U.S. Soccer is at the youth level. That's developing the future national team players. Because, look, how many national team players is the NASL developed? And, final note of this episode, if you really want to do something about it, you need to get moving by December 18th. December 18th, is as far as I can tell now I had to calculate 60 days before the annual general meeting election and I was assuming the election would be on the Saturday of the annual general meeting uh, it's possible I'm off by a day or so but December 18th appears to be the deadline to be nominated for vice president of the, of the US Soccer Federation that position has sat vacant for well, since February, when the sitting vice president, Carlos Cordero, was elected to replace Sunil Gulati as president. And the minutes of an April board of directors meeting, and yes, U.S. soccer is incredibly slow about posting minutes, and they really should do better. They may say, oh, we don't post them until they're approved at the next meeting. Look, other, there are other nonprofit organizations that post their minutes as tentative, and then they will correct them. I don't know which is better governance, uh, but it, it doesn't take that long. They're still having more meetings. So if you've had two meetings since the last, or if you've had, of your last two meetings, the next to last meeting should be online. Pretty much immediately. You know, okay, you want to wait till the next meeting to approve them? Fine. The minute they're approved, you can just hit a button and they go online. There's no reason to make them go any later than that. But I did find in the meeting, in the minutes of that meeting, the, the official word that they were going to wait a whole year uh, till the 2019 AGM to have an election, which you probably figured out by this point because you do have to have those 60 days. And if they were going to call a special election, they would have had to do so publicly. And 60 days from now <laughs> would be in December. So if you want to run for vice president, get your three nomination letters by December 18th because you do have to have those nomination letters. Again, that came up last year, uh, which reminds me of something that I want to follow at some point, which is I'm starting to think that the true winner of the 2018 election was Paul LaPointe. Paul LaPointe was the one public candidate who did not get the three nomination letters. But he then took a job with the UPSL, and the UPSL is expanding like the Tribbles in Star Trek. They have gobbled up everything. They're quickly reaching a point where there may be no other, you know, there may be no other elite amateur soccer uh, other than the summer leagues, the MPSL and the PDL. And, and let's be clear about this. The MPSL and PDL are summer leagues. 
that's that's what they are and they're not anything more than that at this point now the mpsl is talking about doing a professional division and i i would love to see that i think that'd be really interesting uh but for now their summer leads you have all these traditional amateur leagues, like Cosmopolitan Soccer League in, in the New York area, uh, Maryland Major Soccer League near me. Uh, but apparently that league has some sort of agreement now with UPSL. And UPSL is just gobbling everything up. So that is something I want to look into. So declare your nomination for vice president. Maybe you too will be hired by a league that rapidly expands. So consider it. If you're planning to run, get moving. And bear in mind, the term is only for one year, as far as I know, because uh, vice president is elected at opposite even years from the presidency. Uh, or And that's a change since the beginning of the century, because uh, in 1998, uh, Sunil Gulati lost his race for the vice presidency to John Mata. And yes, the same John Mata who is on the board as of this minute, there's another election coming up in which he may lose that spot. Then two years later, they, well, they decided then they were going to set, they weren't going to let the president, the vice president, the same year anymore. So they had another election in 2000, this time Gulati defeated Mata. And so since then, it's been presidency 2002, vice presidency 2004. And so they're offset. So we had 2018 president, 2020 vice president. So if you want to test it out for one year, get your three nomination letters in. Because as of now, I don't know a single person who's running. And I've been checking in with people. I've checked in with a lot of the, uh, I've checked in with some of the former candidates. Well, of course, we asked a lot of the former candidate, the presidential candidates after the election uh, in February. We said, are you interested in running for vice president? And most of them said no. And all I've heard so far no one's really changed their minds. The one person who seemed slightly interested uh, was Mike Winograd, who didn't get a lot of votes in that in the presidential election, but he also didn't make a lot of enemies. People seemed to like him, generally speaking. It's just that he was, I, I think he was a lot of people's second or third choice. He didn't have the rabid support of a Winalda, and he didn't have the political machine uh, or the name recognition of a uh, Cal Martino. I don't. I don't mean to denigrate, you know, the Winalda and Martino campaigns. There, you know, the, the name recognition helped. Uh, that they had a lot to offer. Um, but so did Winograd. It's just that if you're going to make a choice between Winalda and Winograd or Martino and Winograd, you are likely to go with the bigger name and the person who seemed to have a better chance of winning. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people liked Mike Winograd, so he may run again. And, of course, there's the conspiracy theory that, uh, you know, Cordero promised the vice presidency to uh, Chris Ahrens uh, of the Athlete Council in exchange for the Athletes Council votes, which fails to take into account the fact that the vice president has to be elected. And even if the Pro Council and the Athletes Council lined up behind, uh, behind whoever Carlos Cordero tells them to, which is not a sure thing, then you could still outvote outvote that block uh, if you really got got the people lined up to do so. It'd be difficult, um, but you could. And so the you know the possibility of a quid pro quo there is is pretty silly. And at this point, I don't know that Orange is running. 
again, I don't know that anyone's running. So thanks for listening this week. Uh, go out and coach your teams, ref your games, play your games, watch your games, and then run for vice president. Pretty simple, right? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast using whatever podcatcher you use to find this in the first place. Could be iTunes, could be Stitcher, or maybe you came in through the blog, which is rantingsoccerdad.com, where you will find all the past podcasts, along with news and analysis from the world of youth soccer and beyond. And yes, you will find the occasional rant about things. You will also see a link to the Patreon page to support the podcast and blog and all other Ranting Soccer Dad activities. And you'll see merchandise, including the Travel Sucker t-shirt. Until next time, rant on!